Hi there, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Gregor Sleeth Podcast. On the show today, I'm joined by Dr. Josh McLeod from the Deakin University in Australia. Josh is an expert in all things fan ownership, and I'll be asking him about exactly that today. So, for people out there who might be a bit curious as to, like, how do clubs actually become, like, fan-owned? Like, how do they make that step from taking it away from the people with the money into the people who they might argue should be running a club? Sure. So, I think that's quite a good question, and there's different levels to it, because in some contexts, football clubs have or sports clubs, if you're talking in an Australian context, have always just been fan-owned. So the Australian uh, Football League here is the biggest competition in the country, especially in Melbourne. And this is Aussie rules football, and people are obsessed with it. And since its formation, all these AFL clubs have always been uh, fan-owned. And what they refer to here is membership. Membership. Ownership is essentially the same thing, uh, fan ownership. And so there's there's that side of things. It's, it's always been the case. But then there's also uh, situations like we see in the UK where a groups of fans are formed as a result of usually always crises in their football clubs and have not taken it over willingly, but actually it's always just emerges from a crisis. So I don't think I know of too many examples at all where fans have taken control of their club as a collective without there being a crisis there. I know that uh, Kilmarnock uh, weren't in crisis and the supporters trust there managed to raise a bit of money to take what I think was uh, 20% shareholding in the club or something uh, and to get a seat on the board. So the the supporters trusts raised money to at least have some kind of uh, shareholding in, yeah. in the club and get a seat on the board. And there wasn't a, a, a crisis in the background, but so you, you do also have situations like that, but it wasn't full control of the club. It was only maybe 15, 20%. I don't know what the exact amount was. Uh, so there, I, there's a few different ways that fans beca- can become involved in, in ownership in Scottish terms. That's always usually as a result of a crisis. Dunfermline, that was the case there. Uh, Gavin Masterton, who uh, owned the club for many years, ultimately guided it into financial ruin. Mm. And then the PAR Supporters Trust and various other fan organisations there all clubbed together. And in really, really dire circumstances, had to sort it out. And the same was the situation with the Foundation of Hearts. So when Romanov ran that club into the ground. That's led to the formation of the Foundation of Hearts. And I think they're just about to take control of the club uh, from Anne Budge. So uh, that's usually what we see in Scotland. Uh, But there are other countries in the world, as I was saying, like Australia, where it's just always been the case that fan ownership has existed. Even look at Barcelona and Real Madrid. Those are historic uh, fan-owned clubs. And then in Germany, you know, you have the the regulations that ensure that all clubs are at least 50 plus 1% owned by the fans. Uh, So yeah, definitely different across contexts. And it's it's quite sad that like in terms of a year, it takes such extreme situations for them to to get it into the hands of fans. Yeah. And that's why I think that there, there is sometimes said to be an inevitability about 
uh, fan ownership in UK football terms because private ownership, if you have a, a, a good guy who cares about the club, you know, there's, there's no problems with it at all. And it's actually probably more beneficial than fan ownership. But there will come a time where the owner isn't very nice. And in almost all cases, uh, you're gonna, it's the fans who have to pick up the pieces. So there's an inevitability about fan ownership when uh, there is crisis because it's not really an attractive investment prospect uh, for for rich people uh, to get involved in in those circumstances. So what, staying on fan ownership, what are the different types of models that exist for fan ownership? Because I know there's obviously a few different ways that teams go about it. Um, What are some of the different models out there? Yeah, uh, again, I think there's maybe different levels to this. So there's different models of fan ownership in terms of you can be fully owned by the fans, so you know, 100% ownership. You can have, uh, like in Germany, 50% ownership from the fans. And then there are also clubs in Scotland, uh, like Wraith Rovers or even Kilmarnock, where you have minority or, uh, ownership. And so in minority ownership, the, the model of fan involvement will look like you can have 20% uh, ownership in the club and we will give the representative of your supporters trust a seat on the board where they can uh, take the views of the supporters trust and then try and influence uh, decisions mm-hmm. in somewhere like Germany where you have 50 plus 1% then the influence of the fan or fan organization on the board is going to be uh, greater so you might have a majority of the directors on the board ultimately the people that are making decisions come from that fan-owned organization And then you have uh, full fan ownership, like what Hearts will be moving into, where all the control uh, on the board will be run by representatives of that uh, fan organisation. So that's how I would describe the different uh, models that exist of fan ownership. It's really uh, uh, going on a continuum from minority uh, level ownership to half and half, 50 plus one, to full uh, fan ownership. And depending on where a club is on that continuum, fans will have, or representatives of fans, will have uh, a certain number of seats on the board, which gives them a certain number of votes on club decisions and then different levels of influence. Brilliant. Um, so how did... So- fan ownership how does it like operate like because a lot of people out there will think it might just be I don't know a group of elected people running it but what about like the day-to-day stuff does that actually change much when it's like fan owned or yeah I think that's a good point and it reminds me of the uh situation at hearts where there was this mantra used continuously when the plans to for the foundation of hearts to take ownership of the club uh, this mantra was fan owned not fan run so what you just said there gregor about things not changing on a day-to-day basis when you have fan ownership is definitely the way that i think the vast majority of people uh see how fan ownership should work yeah and so i think the best way to illustrate that is uh, looking at the model of the Foundation of Hearts. What that will look like, obviously, I think Anne Budge is still technically the owner, but it's a transition uh, period where they're paying her back. So the, uh, when that transition happens, it will be the Foundation of Hearts that have 
95% ownership of uh, the club or something like that. They will have 10,000 members. I don't know exactly how many members the Foundation Hearts has now, but you know it's roughly around that. Mm-hmm. Each member of the Foundation Hearts will get to vote on who they want on the Foundation Hearts board. And they can even put themselves up for election. And then when you have that Foundation of Hearts board, they, uh, there might be eight of them, will decide who uh, they and hire the senior executives who will essentially run at Hearts on a day-to-day uh, basis. So that would be someone like a director of football like Craig Levine. And that would be other uh, chief operating officers, chief executive officer. And so the representatives of the fan will sit on the foundation of Hearts board. And then the idea is they hire experts in business administration to run the club on a day-to-day basis. So actually there should be no involvement uh, from uh, the perspective of foundation of Hearts directors in the operations of a a club on a day-to-day basis. The point is those guys hire experts to do that. So, do you think if the future of fan ownership could move away from the point where it's not just because of crisis and that people might actually start to be proactive about it? Yeah, uh, I think that, again, uh, an interesting point. I'm, I'm probably not optimistic that that will happen. Uh, I think in some cases, the people that own football clubs, right, uh, particularly in Scotland, there's less glamour associated with it now than there was in the past. So even through the early 2000s, for example, in those in that era where you had Romanov and, and other guys uh, coming through, there was there was probably a sense that Scottish football was prestigious among the people who were working in Scottish football. They probably thought that it was far more prestigious than it was. I think all of that collapsed with the Satanta deal, but then after that, certainly with uh, Rangers, right? So there was, I, I guess, a greater sense in the 2000s that, you know, owning a Scottish football club as a private owner uh, was something that they, was desirable to them. But I think the way in which football has changed and you've had this polarisation and all the glitz and glamour is concentrated in those top five leagues. And really, as a businessman, there's, there's not the same sense of glitz and glamour uh, owning a Scottish football club. There was probably never that glitz and glamour. They just thought it was. They thought, they thought there was. Uh, so I think that w- as a result of that, Scottish football not being perceived in the same way, we are likely to see uh, more fan ownership uh, in the future. Uh, But that's not going to necessarily be because fans are going to be really proactive about raising money and taking over clubs. It's probably going to be due to the fact that these private owners are thinking, you know, is this really worth it? You know, I can't really be bothered doing this anymore. I'd rather keep my money for myself. Yeah, because there's not necessarily that same glitz and glamour associated with Scottish football. And there's always going to be the case of, of crises as well. Yeah. Uh, that, that's that's definitely going to reoccur. Although I could be wrong in this, but I, I get a sense that Scottish football is behaving in a more sensible way than it has in, in previous uh, eras. And so maybe that there, the, there's going to be less uh, crises too. Could be wrong, but... You know, the last big one we had, COVID is obviously a, a big factor. 
Uh, and so that that's going to be financially problematic for many, many clubs. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll see how that all unfolds. It might be the case that we get a lot of fan ownership as a result of that. Yeah. Um, because when when you have private owners that say, you know, I, I don't have the money personally to pay these bills. We need to file for administration. We We might need to liquidate this club. We don't have any money. What happens in those situations is that the club will liquidate itself or it will go into administration and then it will just re-emerge as a fan-owned club. So from that perspective, I think we are going to see more fan ownership for a range of different reasons. Uh, but the one that I think is is least likely is perhaps that fans are just going to go on a fundraising campaign when their club is otherwise in good health uh, and and take it over. There's enough crises and enough disinterest from the private sector to kind of force the the position of fans. The reality is fan-owned clubs can only generate a certain amount of capital. And the problem is always if that ability to generate money doesn't lead to or doesn't satisfy the fans' expectations in terms of signing players to perform well on the pitch, fan ownership is in trouble because after 10 years, the fans will get restless. They'll say, we're not performing as well as we should. We need more money for better players. And there will be a far greater appetite to sell off to investors from Germany or the US or whatever it might be. The only Another thing with that is I, I would hope that fan-owned clubs will be doing more due diligence about the type of owners that they're bringing in uh, to ensure that, you know, that it's not going to be another Vladimir Romanov or Gavin Masterton in the case of Dunfermline. And that was something that I uh, was reading about with uh, this deal between uh, Dunfermline and their German investors. They did a lot of due diligence on these German investors and it appeared that, you know, they were the real deal. You know, they really had the capability to take the club forward and manage it effectively and also make sure that they're uh, respectful to, you know, the historic traditions of the club. So yeah, I guess to sum up my view on this, I think we are going to see generally more fan ownership in the future, but also uh, it's it's not like it's going to be every club in Scotland. And in fact, in some years, we will see less fan ownership uh, than the year before. Fantastic, Josh. Thank you very much for your time this morning. No problem at all, Gregor. It was good to chat to you. I hope you enjoyed the first episode. Next time we'll be continuing with the theme of fan ownership in football by talking to Derek Watson, a board member of the Well Society, owners of Mullable Football Club. See you then.